I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of The Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from a pavan called Paradiso from Anthony Holborn's collection of pavans, galliards, almains, and other short airs, both grave and light, published in 1599. At the end of this podcast, you can listen to this piece complete, along with some other pieces which help us think about Shakespeare's Pericles, Prince of Tyre. And this is part of a series of podcasts, supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the SPEM in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and York University, on the interaction between the court mask and the public theatre companies in the time of Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, and their contemporaries. In this episode, I'll be speaking to two guests, Linda Austern, Professor of Music at Northwestern University, and Tom Bishop, Professor in English at the University of Auckland. I talked to Tom about plays, playhouses, and playgoers in an episode from our series on Margaret Bourne's Lute Book, and you'll enjoy going back and listening to that if you haven't already. Tom and I spoke over Skype about Pericles' authorship, structure, and its place in Shakespeare's work, ushering in a more multimedia experience for its viewers. Now, Tom, you've edited uh, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, uh, for Internet Shakespeare, which means that almost everybody who's written an essay for high school or university on Shakespeare has read your work. Pericles seems a bit different to some plays, and one reason might be its authorship. Do you want to just give us a quick synopsis about uh, Shakespeare's, in inverted commas, uh, Pericles of Tyre? Yes, John. Pericles is an anomalous play in Shakespeare's output because it wasn't reprinted in the big 1623 large book collected edition of his plays. There's one other play that wasn't reprinted, but we have a good text for that. In the case of Pericles, we have a very, very bad, probably the worst published text of any of Shakespeare's plays, and we don't have a supplementary text to correct it. What seems to have happened, but this is speculative, is that the play was put together by Shakespeare and another person. Probably it was a man called George Wilkins, who was an emerging younger playwright who'd had a couple of successes, among others with another collaborative play called The Travels of the Three English Brothers, which was a kind of reality TV play about some Englishmen abroad in the Eastern Mediterranean. And this play was apparently quite successful. I suspect what happened was that George Wilkins, milking this travelogue play Vogue, proposed to Shakespeare's company, The King's Men, that they work on a play which was based on an ancient story recently republished uh, about a man called Apollonius which was also a romance travelogue of the Eastern Mediterranean, building on the modern version, but here's an old-style version of that tale. As it happens, Shakespeare, at the very beginning of his career, had already written a play which included quite a lot of the material from that folktale. In this case, it was the Comedy of Errors. Mm. 
And whether it was because he was already familiar with the tale or because he was the company's principal house playwright or because he had a standing interest in the story, he agreed at some point to collaborate with Wilkins either contributing the last three acts of the play off his own bat or revising something that Wilkins had already pitched. So it was probably a collaborative work of some kind to begin with, though there are different opinions about this. But then in the course of producing the play and then publishing it, the business of communicating a print copy was thoroughly and irretrievably botched. And so what we actually have in print is a a published play so bad that it's almost impossible to resolve all of the outstanding questions about it. It does seem, however, to have been something of a swerve or a departure in, in the main line of Shakespeare's writing, which led to a subsequent group of plays that share quite a lot of procedures with it. It's much more open textured. It's much more uh, song and dance friendly, we could say. It's much more variegated in its appeal than the plays that he had written immediately before, which were plays like Coriolanus, a quite grim historical play based on the biography of an ancient Roman who came to a sticky end, and Timon of Athens, a play which was probably also collaborative about an ancient Greek grump and the bad end that he and Pericles was very what seems to have been a quite a popular play it boasts on the cover how it was done at the globe quite often and um i think ben johnson makes a a joke in one of his plays uh, something like uh, oh you probably want something like Pericles that's very popular right now it was a hugely popular play john uh, it was published and republished again the same year which means that the first print run of the publication sold out in double quick time very very unusual for a play text to be printed again within 12 months indicating a tremendous popularity we also have some contemporary references to its popularity to crowds thronging to the theater to see it and so on and yes ben johnson Uh, Some decades later, it's actually in a poem in which he urges himself to leave the loathed stage. He refers to his inability to write a popular hit like uh, a mouldy tale like Pericles, he calls it. Uh, It was clearly a a play form that he thoroughly despised, uh, an old-fashioned, romantic, disarticulated, episodic, sentimental romance whereas he preferred much tighter, much more prestigious, much more uh, orderly kinds of plays based on what he took to be the rules from uh, classical antiquity. So it was a huge hit. It it was almost certainly uh, performed many times, and it does indeed on the first published version advertise itself as performed by the King's Men uh, at the Globe on Bankside in South London. It's, uh, it's, as you say, it's kind of episodic and a travelogue. They are here and they do this and then they hop in a boat and then they go here and something else happens. And it's, it, it's peculiar, it seems to me, in that way as well. Or, or was that the vogue, as you say, at the time? It's essentially a kind of family separation and reunion story, which is protracted over... 16 years at least that kind of play had been quite popular in the later elizabethan years 
And as I say, Shakespeare himself had explored a version of that story in the Comedy of Errors. It wasn't so much popular in the early years of James's reign, and in some ways Pericles seems to be a revival, though there was, at the time when Pericles was staged, a, a developing interest in the kinds of plays that we used to enjoy 20 years ago, and Pericles seems to participate in that. A certain amount of nostalgia for things Elizabethan after seven years or so of King James uh, seems to have set in. And it does have, as you say, have, uh, well, that's one reason that we're uh, talking about it. It does have a lot of opportunities or demands uh, music be put in, uh, songs performed by uh, Marina, the daughter, dances for the soldiers and the ladies at the banquet and things like that. In some ways, it's actually a kind of variety show, to tell the truth. It, it's <laughs> rehearsing in public all of the kinds of pleasures that you might expect to see at a popular entertainment at the Globe. You know, Coriolanus, on the other hand, is a very grim, concentrated uh, and difficult work, uh, which probably appealed to a very specific kind of fraction of the audience, although it does have battle scenes, which were always popular. Um, <laughs> but Pericles has a, an evil tyrant, a, a a difficult riddle solved by our hero, a shipwreck, a tournament, uh, which takes place off stage, but at least you get the procession of the combatants passing across the front of the stage. Songs and dances, love scenes, murder plots, pirates, brothels, uh, goddesses. It's got the lot. Absolutely got the lot. See the marquee <laughs> theatre. If I may have to put an explicit marker on this episode, but uh, George Wilkins did get busted for running a brothel. Perhaps writing the play maybe made him want to start one up. I think that's probably right. It needs to be noted, of course, that the Globe Theatre on the south bank of the Thames was in the brothel district of London anyway. Um, and uh, you, so you can understand why uh, when they tried to open the Blackfriars, they didn't want these kind of uh, people, actors and George Wilkins and uh, hanging around their neighborhood and uh, prevented the King's men from moving in there at first. Yeah, that was a bit earlier. In fact, the King's men moved into the, Black, the Blackfriars Theatre um, shortly after the first performances of Pericles, though it was not itself written for performance in the Blackfriars in the first instance. It's certainly a play which could have moved into that space quite easily, um, and subsequent plays of Shakespeare's in particular, The Winter's Tale and The Tempest, seem to have been written for first performance in the Blackfriars, though they too were perfectly capable of being staged at the Globe. When I was speaking with Stephen Orgel, uh, briefly I mentioned, uh, he, he came up this... Um, earlier Elizabethan play that was done at the Inns of Court called Gorboduc, where the different groups of instruments from the royal court, in dumb shows between the acts, they represent different things like the violin band represents the harmony of the state and uh, under the stage, the hoboys represent uh, a uh, infernal scene and things like this. The music in Pericles seems to do that as well. Do you want to talk about that and how the music is just not a multimedia experience? It's also got symbolic meaning. Well, Gorboduc was thoroughly arranged and orchestrated by um, educated intellectuals for a court performance. 
So they had uh, much more control over those kinds of symbolic resonances than the public theatres really liked to exercise. But it is true that there were certain standard associations between particular kinds of sound and particular metaphysical or symbolic associations. So, for instance, the music, which almost certainly preceded and accompanied the descent of the goddess Diana at the end of the play, is likely to have been ethereal music uh, indicating the harmony of the spheres and the beneficence of divine control of the action. So therefore probably not likely to have been hope boys and shawms and things, but vials and softer, more gentle instruments of various kinds. The music that's used to accompany the revival of Thaisa in the middle of the play, the miracle of her um, medical resurrection, was probably closely tied to ideas about uh, medicine and therapy and sound and so on. We don't know, unfortunately, what kinds of specific music would have accompanied uh, the tournament scene or the procession of the competitors, but most likely it was music associated with martial feeling and, and combat of the kind that could have been used, for instance, at the accession day tournaments that were uh, popular um, under both Elizabeth and James. So there, there was a certain expectation of a texturing of sound that was appropriate to the particular kind of atmosphere that a scene was attempting to put in place. We don't have a great deal of information about that in the case of Pericles, partly because the text itself is so botched. This play has uh, a lot of spectacular things in. Tell us about uh, the spectacles, some of the spectacles that Shakespeare or Wilkins Shakespeare deploy in this play. It's a play which is deliberately designed, I think, to be a kind of multimedia extravaganza, um, probably not unrelated to the tremendous upsurge of interest in the contemporary court mask, which most people, of course, couldn't get into because it was a closed shop. Uh, there was a lot of hunger for and interest in these spectacular court entertainments. And one of the things that the King's Men seems to have done uh, at, the, at the end of what turned out to be the end of Shakespeare's career was to produce a series of plays which allowed various aspects of the court mask, particularly its more spectacular aspects, to be imitated on the public stage at much lower expense, it needs to be said. But still, to give a popular audience some insight into the kinds of spectacular display that the mask and associated entertainments like the barriers and a joust and so on um, would provide to a court audience. Uh, there is in Pericles a link character, uh, the poet John Gower, and his job is to provide liaison between the widely separated episodes of the narrative, but also to explain and encourage the audience to invest their imagination in the play, which is also full of dumb shows and silent displays of various kinds at various points. And quite often these are related to the kinds of things that you might have seen in the mask. And this is a, a habit that goes on in The Winter's Tale, a dance of satyrs, comes on in the sheep shearing scene and we're told that that some of them have recently danced before the king which is probably a reference to the occurrence of a similar dance of satyrs in uh, the court mask Oberon the fairy prince which was uh, put on at court 
also in that year. Likewise, in The Tempest, of course, there is actually a betrothal mask that Prospero puts on for his daughter and her fiancé, which is very closely related to and modelled on the kinds of things that you see at court. So already in Pericles, there seems to be a sense of a gesture towards contemporary court entertainment, pulling some aspects of the design of that play onto the, the public stage for people to enjoy for a prize. Linda Austern has been writing about music and Shakespeare since her book Music in English Children's Drama of the Later Renaissance in 1992, and about music and medicine for just as long. I spoke to her about her new book over Skype from her office in Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. And then I told Linda about the pieces we were about to play for you and why we'd chosen them. Linda, you've got a new book coming out, both from the ears and mind, thinking about music in early modern English, uh, sorry, in early modern England, uh, University of Chicago Press. It's not even out as we're speaking, uh, out in May. So that's the sort of thing that would interest me to begin with. But when I saw that chapter five was uh, comfortable in sickness and health, music to temper self and surroundings, I was very excited and thought we'd better get you to talk about music and healing, of which there's quite a bit in Pericles. Uh, but first, in case any of our listeners uh, weren't medical students in the 16th century, let's can we just recap the medical theory and of this period and the humours and how they work in us and, in fact, are us? There is actually quite a number of medical theories that come together or from which practitioners of both music and medicine, which pretty much included everybody there was, they practiced one or the other, could choose. So one of the most important starting points is to recognize that a physician and a musician did a lot of the same kind of work. So just like a musician had to keep an instrument, including the vocal apparatus of the body, in tune, a physician metaphorically kept the instrument that was the human body in working order. So one of the most important sets of theories that you've already mentioned was this idea that every human body was comprised of a unique balance of four humors. These were substances that were infused throughout the body. In terms of music, the two most important elements were what we would call sanguinity or blood and melancholy or black bile. And the other two of the humors were phlegmatic or choleric. And these humors affected everything from your body type, complexion, personality, even your own personal likes and mm-hmm. dislikes. And we, and we, I mean, it's easy to poo-poo this now that we know about uh, serotonin and uh, uh, EKGs and thing. You know, we have all these things. It's easy to poo-poo this, but we still explain the world and persons to ourselves using these right we still we still say that oh he's an absolutely bilious person and or uh, i'm feeling a bit melancholy and people have dry wits who make jokes that aren't funny 
We absolutely still use these. And in fact, modern scholars still think about music relating to melancholy in particular. There have been modern cognitive scientific studies that show that people seem to sometimes respond more to sad music, especially sad complex music from classical genres. So we still have preferences that the 16th century would have recognized. We, we always imagine uh, medieval and early modern treatment is you just walk into a doctor and he Im immediately is opening a vein or sticking some leeches on you. Their first thing that they do is diet uh, to balance these humors. Our food, we eat this food and it gets broken in, up into all these humors, but we have a natural tendency to one or another. So the doctor would tailor it to us in the same way as you describe music. I think it's Thomas Bright, who's a writes a treatise on melancholy, uh, 1587, I think it is, right around there. He talks about how only the happiest kind of music unless they're more learned in music, and then you've got to give them complex music. I'm glad you're mentioning music as a healing agent in the context of going to a doctor. So one way in which pre-modern medicine differs from modern medicine is if you got sick in Shakespeare's era, you had many options for treatment, including self-treatment. Instead of necessarily going to a doctor or a midwife, you could go to any person who had proven success in treating your kind of ailment. So in some ways, a musician, even a recreational practicing musician, might have access to his or her own cure, along with diet, your dietary preferences, choosing what to drink, choosing how to warm yourself. Music was one of the tools that you could reach for in your home medical kit, so to speak. Mm -hmm. and, it, it's, and, it, and it works because I can assure you that if you put a red steak and a red wine in front of me, I would be have a more of the sanguine humor. I would be more cheerful. And uh, tomorrow I might have a dry mouth as the, uh, the sanguine humor got burnt and changed to uh, burnt melancholy. I would probably have a dry mouth tomorrow and feel bad for all the things I did last night. Everybody knew then, and perhaps even knows now, that it was sanguine people who made the best musicians. It was people who naturally saw in melodies and harmonies some reflection of self that were drawn to music. Um, they were able to warm others as well as themselves, but yes, too much of a good thing could overdry a sanguine or anybody else. So it's yeah, important to stay in balance. Um, somebody we've met before in our podcast, uh, our interview with uh, Jorge Torres, talking about comportment lessons and lute lessons being the same thing, is Mary Burrell. Now, you, she comes up in your chapter uh, talking about music as a medicine. Tell us about her. Yes, so Mary Burrell, as listeners may know, 
was a young gentlewoman about whom we know very little other than that she was born in the 1650s and sometime during her teen years before she got married in the 1670s, she took lute lessons and copied from a treatise belonging to her lute master. And she first tells us um, that the lute will balance your body and your mind. Whatever is wrong with you, the lute will make you better. So she basically says that the music from the lute rises into the brain and gently moisturizes the heat and dryness. And if you're too hot, um, you become moist. If you're too dry, you become damp. And she also says that if you are sad, the lute music will banish sorrow and if you are cruel or angry, the lute and its music will help turn this to compassion. And she goes one step further and tells her readers, or it's what her, her reader may have been herself, she says that on the lute, we can express sadness, pity, hatred, scorn, love, grief, and we can communicate all of this to listeners. So nothing better helps move listeners and heal anything that is ailing their mind or body than music. So this lute method we discuss in the previous episode, it's part of what every young woman needs to know is uh, these things about comportment and grace when sitting holding a lute. But you attract attention to the fact another thing that a woman would need to know, she'd be responsible in the household for the healing. As you just said, your, your MD diploma on the wall isn't what makes you a healer it's your reputation and your skill so in this book you as you describe she's got these loot pieces that she says is her medicine and you flip it over and in the back and she's inherited recipes for uh, herbal remedies and things as well yes in the back it's actually her mother who owned the book and in a hand that could possibly be her mother's hand are remedies for healing so um, this is a wonderful material object today as we've inherited it on one side is all of this information about everything the loot can do for you, including for a young woman, make you more attractive on the marriage market. And if you flip it over, there are um, herbal recipes for healing, things you can give a sick person. And actually medical treatises do tell us that these things can be used in conjunction. And we need to remember that in a gentle household of the 16th or 17th century, the first line remedy was not like it is now, look on the internet, but it might have been the pre-modern equivalent. Um, you go to the wisest person in the house, the woman, the lady of the house who's running the house, and she knows what to do. It's only after she fails that you might go and fetch a midwife or a physician or your local apothecary. And music is not just one of the tools in her kit, so to speak, 
but it's something um, that should be practiced regularly as prevention. Just like you mentioned that a sanguine should have a certain amount of, say, red meat and red wine in his or her diet to keep your fingers nimble and your blood flowing, you should play the lute or some other instrument and perhaps sing as well. You, what you just read from um, her lute tutor about uh, the harmony rising to the brain and actually drying it out, raising the spirits and reviving the spirits for them, the way music does that, I might use that as a, at best, a metaphor and probably just as a cliche now, but they are really imagining the reviving of these spirits within them. Absolutely. We need to remember that the way we use the word spirits today is very different from the way the pre-modern era understood them. So the spirits to a pre-modern person were the communication device between all parts of the body, the body and the brain, and at a certain level between two bodies. So an instrument like the lute could really be um, useful in helping raise the spirits because an instrument itself could vibrate and we have to recognize that spirit, which is this substance that's everywhere in the body, um, it's neither living on its own nor non-living necessarily, but it helps all parts of the body communicate all entities that can vibrate or breathe communicate with each other so um, what you end up getting is an instrument like the lute can vibrate and literally push your spirits at a certain pace make your heart beat faster make all of what we would today call the circulatory system flow better and can also help with unspoken intrapersonal interpersonal communication uh, Mary Burrell is quite late compared to what the, the music will be playing but Thomas Robinson uh, you draw attention to him uh, he's writing in 1603 in the School of Music which is kind of a, uh, it's mostly a lute method, but there's also instructions for the viola da gamba and singing. And he says uh, the, music, the musician should be uh, educated in the divine things, but that a musician should be a physician, I see no such necessity. But the music is physical, it is plainly seen by those maladies it cureth. So music is a physic, is a way of healing you as well. In 1603, right up until Mary Burrell and for hundreds of years before. Yes, absolutely, for hundreds of years before. And when we think about physic and physician, we have to remember that the idea in the 16th and 17th centuries was not necessarily limited to what we would today call a physician or medical doctor, but it included knowledge of natural philosophy or a precursor to natural science as well. And a musician, um, of course, was a kind of physician. He or she worked in a physical world that also affected metaphysical qualities of an individual, such as their mood. Um, let, me, let me continue uh, with Thomas Robinson, and then that'll lead us into the, uh, our soul. 
uh, we've been talking about physical things, but as you say, they're one it leads into the other. But of necessity, uh, says Thomas Robinson, a musician must be a perfect arithmetician, for that music consisteth altogether of number. And um, you talk about uh, you talk about a man called Malcaster talking about our soul as number. So the the musical arithmetic helps um, bring the uh, harmony of our soul, the numbers of our soul into harmony as well. It's all about kinds of balance, about analogical balance. And in fact, music is in some ways the perfect substance for linking what we would call opposites today because the means of production of music, whether an instrument or the body, are physical and physiological and somehow constructed, but yet music has these unseen, unheard, intangible aspects. You can see and feel how music is produced, but you can't necessarily touch music. So this is good Aristotelian logic. What is music? It has pulses, so does a body. Pulses are measured by number, so is arithmetic. So this is all a very large complex in which physics and metaphysics join together and in which what we would today call metaphor becomes something real and affective on the human body and the spiritual elements of the person as well. Um, let me tell you, Linda, the, the pieces that we'll be hearing right after we stop speaking. And you jump in and comment. I'll leave spaces for you to comment. Uh, we're using our five-part Renaissance violin band after 1610, after uh, you, uh, the boys' companies would typically be playing the broken concert, but increasingly the uh, five-part violins were used in the indoor theatre after uh, moving into the Blackfriars and the indoor theatre becomes more popular. So uh, we're using that ensemble and we're just putting together things that we think might fit into Pericles. Uh, there's a banquet scene. Um, uh, Pericles ends up at uh, Simonides' court and is uh, down at the dumps uh, at uh, dinner. Uh, he, Simonides says, uh, we'll wake him from his melancholy, he says of Pericles. Even in your armors, as you are dressed, will very well become a soldier's dance. So he turns to his military men and asks them to dance in their armor. So we chose uh, the King of Denmark's Galliard from a collection of music called Lacrimae or Seven Tears by John Dowland from the first decade of the 17th century. And this is a piece, it's called the Battle Galliard in some of the lute versions that are out there. And it's uh, sort of in an old-fashioned Renaissance uh, genre where you have sort of trumpet-like figures in one key and then trumpet-like figures in a key that's sort of far apart and then they come together. So we played that uh, for the uh, soldiers to dance to, we imagined. Yes, well, that's a good starting point for some of the ways both body and mind or soul are affected. So there are some writers who considered the galliard the most masculine kind of dance or masculine kind of piece. 
So if a soldier would listen to a galliard or even more to the point, dance a galliard, it would emphasize the aspects of his personhood that were most manly. Also, having music after a banquet is interesting because there were other physicians writing in the vernacular in the 16th century who pointed out that music had always belonged in English banquets because music and dancing afterwards helps one digest one's food. And as we've just said, digestion would help balance a person's humors. So what we're looking at here is um, sort of a multi-sensory, multi-modal way of restoring the manly self after eating, listening to music that will enter the ear and affect all systems of the body as it dissolves to become part of the internal spirits and then what we would today consider the bloodstream. So this is really a way of restoring sanguinity and masculinity. That's what old Pericles needs, it would appear. Um, you, you draw attention to Henry VIII writes in his uh, biggest hit song, uh, Pastime with Company. He says that hunting, singing and dancing are important pastimes. And um, later, uh, uh, Robert Burton in his uh, Anatomy of Melancholy talks about be not solitary and be not idle. Those are the best things to uh, oh, counteract melancholy, which uh, King Henry VIII is already saying uh, in, the, in his uh, hit song. Uh, after um, the uh, knights dance, the, they dance with the ladies. For that one, we chose, uh, because I love the piece, The Fairy Round by Holborn, uh, Anthony Holborn, uh, published in 1599 for five-part, it says, viols, violons, or other wind instruments. Yes, I love that. It's a great piece. It's, um, it's uh, one of the most widely distributed pieces ever in musical history because it's on the golden LP that is on the Voyager spaceship. I think it was set in the, in the 70s it was sent and is now outside our solar system. So when um, aliens with uh, three heads find the Voyager spaceship and um, put on that golden LP, they'll be listening to the Fairy Round, which we are also playing. Uh, uh, now, uh, poor old Pericles and his wife, uh, who's great with child, end up on a ship, and there's a terrible shipwreck, uh, and there's a Gower, the narrator, describes the uh, different elements which correspond to these humours, battering the ship. Uh, Gower describes her going into uh, childbirth. The lady shrieks and Wellanir does fall into travail uh, with her fear, which uh, goes into childbirth. Pericles said of, says of the newborn baby, they house as chiding a nativity as fire, air, water and earth and heaven can make to herald thee from the womb. I was trying to, uh, let me and you think, since we know a bit about early modern medicine, what would we diagnose uh, poor, poor Thais's childbirth death as? Just battered by all these winds? Battered by all the winds and a real imbalance of whatever her innate humor is. Mm -hmm. 
So it's as if there's a whirling storm inside her poor battered body reflecting the storm outside. So this is terrible imbalance. And maybe I'm getting ahead of us here, but thinking about her cure and going back to the illness, I'm wondering if she almost literally had the air, which would be the spirits mm -hmm. and soul and her breath just knocked out of her. So yeah, the, the, the air is the, uh, corresponds with blood, the sanguine humor, and it's warm and moist, and melancholy is cold and dry, the opposite yeah. of those, uh, those uh, things. And so as you, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it, Thaisa is uh, put in a coffin and thrown overboard. She washes up and Saruman, the local lord, is reviving her. He says, uh, make a fire within. So he's adding heat to her, counteracting the coldness and the moistness. Uh, he says, the rough and woeful music that we have, cause it to sound, beseech you. The vile once more. How thou stirrest, thou block. And of course, she comes back to life. Where he says the vial, uh, it's spelt in the original V-I-O-L-L, but I've seen it in modern, modernized spelling as vial, like a vial of medicine, which I think is totally wrong. I couldn't agree with you more. It's very clear he's thinking about vi viols rather than vials mm -hmm. there because he's called for chests of equipment and material to be brought to him. We already do know that as a physician, he extracts essences from things. And um, yes, he probably has vials full of some kind of liquid to distill it. And we're seeing it again this idea that music needs to complement something else that's ingested into the body by means of another sense. Um, so he does want the vial, V-I-O-L, or maybe that should have originally been vials in the, pu in the plural, to sound. And then after he refers to the music, he says to his assistants, I pray you give her air. Mm -hmm. Air is not just the sanguine element, but in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, um, he uses the term air to signify audible music that's capable of moving the spirits. So giving her air could be giving her a musical air, enabling her to breathe, giving her the sanguine element to get her heart beating again. Um, in other words, if the air was knocked out of her, and that may be how she died in this windy, rough storm, restoring it with warmth and appropriate music is bringing her back to life. In uh, a John Day's Humor Out of Breath, uh, play in 1608, uh, Viola da Gamba, a bass viol. Uh, Hortensio says, what have we here? A bass viol. So he, pl or somebody plays the bass viol right on stage. Felix Deke, uh, our friend's recording of Death by Tobias Hume, or Tobias Holm, played uh, on the solo Viola da Gamba, played the Lira way, is what we chose for playing for that. That's a wonderful choice because in spite of the name, what we get in that piece, if I'm remembering correctly, is a lot of rising motives. I've never figured out why it's called death. Perhaps you have. 
we are raising spirits and there's a metaphor that's just founded on human consciousness that says rising motives or up metaphorically means happiness or giddiness. Like if you say today, I'm having a down day or an up day, we know what you mean. And music can use the same metaphor. So that's a, a wonderful choice. Plus, when Saruman refers to rough and woeful music that we have, it's pretty obvious that the storm happened overnight. It's either the early hours of the morning or the late hours of night. And rough and woeful might refer to the style of music or it might refer to the fact that he has to wake up whoever can handle the <laughs> vial at the very last moment. So having a solo instrument there really does fit with waking up Lord Saruman and saying, help us, we have this uh, box. What's in the box? Oh, a corpse. Better revive her. I've said uh, from time to time of easy pieces, oh, I could play that in my sleep. But I think it, I am definitely using it as a metaphor there. There's a scene later on where um, Pericles, there's a little, it's a, sort of a dumb show that goes on, a procession where Pericles goes to visit the grave of his daughter. It says, enter Pericles at one door with all his train, Cleon and Dionysa at the other. Cleon shows Pericles the tomb, whereat Pericles makes lamentation, puts on sackcloth, and in a mighty passion, Parts. So for that funeral scene, we chose also from Lacrimae or Seven Tears by John Dowland, we chose Sir Henry Umpton's funeral. Now it's a pavan, uh, which is a slow processional dance, full, it's quite a passionate pavan, I think it's safe to say. But there's also Sir Henry Umpton or Unton has a very famous funeral picture where there's all these different scenes from his life. There's him in military camp in Holland and there's him being born and him doing everything. And one of the scenes uh, is him playing in a vial consort. Another scene is there's a little masking procession around the table and uh, Henry Unton and all his friends are playing in what we'd call now a broken concert with um, cittern, vial, violin, flute, bass, vial and lute. And uh, these children are walking around them in a, in a little procession and they're all masked and in costume. Any thoughts about that picture? Yes, I've actually thought quite a bit about the music in that picture. It was painted or it was commissioned by Unton's widow as a way to memorialize him, to remember him. And the scene you're talking about with the, the little mask and the broken consort is at the bottom of his house. And that's really the public part of the home. He's showing his taste and musical ability, sharing with his friends in the part of the home where anybody could enter. It's where his private face and his public face as Sir Henry Unton come together. But upstairs from that is where he's playing the viol with, as I recall, three gentlemen and a boy, or maybe two gentlemen and two boys. So that would be more music 
music for himself, music to enjoy or possibly to balance or keep in balance whatever parts of the mind and body get balanced by music, as opposed to throwing a wonderful performance involving a cast of dozens in the more public part of the home where there's also a banquet going on. So we're following this idea that music can help the good English person digest food. And finally, in toward, right at the end of the play, he's got, uh, Pericletus has got his daughter back. Sorry for all these spoilers if you haven't uh, seen the play. His daughter is returned to him through uh, her singing. Uh, his wits are returned to him. And then he hears, uh, he hears music, but nobody else in the room does. He says, but heart, what music tell? Alicanus, uh, my marina. And they think he's doting. So he's, here's this music of the spheres and uh, the goddess Diana appears and says, don't worry, your wife's not dead. She's a priestess. Get to Ephesus and you'll find her at my uh, temple in Ephesus. And he, he sees this and nobody else does. And he hears this music. For this music we chose, because it's a great piece and I love it, Paradiso from... Um, also from Holborn's uh, collection of Pavins and Galliards of uh, 1599. It's count called the Countess of Pembroke's P Paradise in uh, other lute sources. And it's, uh, again, a processional piece, which I imagine Diana coming in in a dignified way. That's a wonderful choice, including the fact that you made it at all, because there seems to be a certain amount of debate as to whether the audience should hear this magical celestial music that, as Shakespeare says in Merchant of Venice, um, we can't hear. While we're in living bodies, we can't hear the music of the spheres. So that implies right there that Pericles in, is in some kind of ecstatic trance state. And if we, the audience, hear the music, then we're with him. We get it, whereas the other characters in the scene don't. And furthermore, assuming Diana is your typical average stage goddess, she would have to descend on some kind of dragon back or chariot or other conveyance that would make noise. So there would have to be some piece of music to cover the magic, the sound of the stage machine, or we wouldn't really believe in her. We'd just be hearing creaking. Oh, I can't promise that we played it loud enough to be heard over 17th century uh, stage machinery. Here then is John Dowland's King of Denmark's Galliard from his collection of 1604 called Lacrimae or Seven Tears for viols or violins with lute. Anthony Holborn's Fairy Round from his Pavan's Galliards, etc. of 1599. Death by Tobias Holm from his The First Part of Heirs of 1605. Dowland's Sir Henry Umpton's Funeral, also from his Lacrimae or Seven Tears. And finally, Holborn's Paradiso. Felix Deke's recording of Death is from an album called Crazy by his ensemble E Furiosi. It's available for purchase or download wherever good music is sold. The Musicians in Ordinary Renaissance Violin Band is Matt Antal, Brandon Chui, and Sheila Smythe violas. Laura Jones, bass violin. Me, John Edwards, on lute, all led by Christopher Verrett, violin. <laughs> 